3: Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast from Talk Sport. With me, Sam Matterface, the assistant editor of the Daily Mirror, in Darren Lewis and Talk Sport's football correspondent Alex Crook, as Liverpool do a cup double.
4: The vanquish have departed, leaving only one to take this famous walk up the Wembley steps. Their ribbons adorning the oldest trophy in the game, and those ribbons are red. Jurgen Klopp rewriting history. One piece of silverware at a time.
3: So much to get into with the boys. Does the boy Crook really now think that West Ham can't hold Manchester City? Huh, another beep, beep, reverse, incoming. Our problems mounting up for Chelsea. VA Arsicle at Goodison Park. And Leeds leave it late to give themselves a prayer, probably read by Mother Teresa. It's the best review of all the weekend's action. It's the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. This is Game Day. Well, what a weekend it was. Not only in the Premier League, but the FA Cup final as well. Congratulations, Darren. Darren sat here last week. He said to us, Crook, it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. And it's not over, is it, Darren?
1: (laughs) No, it's not over. I I thought at one stage um, on Sunday afternoon that it was going to be a perfect weekend for Liverpool. When West Ham went 2-0 up, and City couldn't find a reply, um, but you know the point will do. And for all of us, it, well, you know, regardless of what team you support, or if you're a neutral, uh, the, the fact is that we do want the you know the whole thing to go to the final day. We don't like dead rubbers. We like the excitement to go all the way to the wire. That's what's going to happen now.
3: Yeah, yeah it certainly is. I think it's going to go to the final day of the season, no matter what you're fighting. If you're fighting for a top four place if you're fighting uh, to stay in the Premier League. There was so much action this weekend. And of course, that FA Cup final as well. Um, I think all three of us were at the FA Cup final at the, at the weekend. And uh, it, was a, it was a brilliant event, wasn't it? I thought the FA did a very good job of, of making a spectacle of the 150th year of the grand old competition. Crook, you were behind uh, the goal away to my left. I was commentating high up on the gantry, but you were down away to my left. Behind the Liverpool fans, you were right in the thick of it. have you managed to get all the smoke out of your jacket? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Do you know what? That was absolutely incredible. It was like bonfire night behind me. There were sparklers, there were red flares being thrown onto the pitch. It it got a bit dicey at one stage, but I actually spent a lot of the penalty shootout filming the Liverpool fans. So I didn't actually see uh, Sadio Mane's spot kick. I'm told it was a, a very good save because I was filming the Liverpool fans believing this would be their moment of glory, wanted to capture that reaction, obviously captured uh, in the end their agony. I was filming when Simmercast, the unlikely uh, penalty shootout hero, told me after the game it was the, the first time he'd ever taken a spot kick. When that spot kick went in, I saw the unbridled joy. And it warmed the heart, actually, because the FA Cup, I think, takes a bit of a kicking still. And I don't understand it, because if you look at the teams who win it, historically, it is one of the the big clubs in the Premier League. And I saw what it meant to those Liverpool supporters. And you're dead right. The day was fantastic. The weekend was fantastic. 50,000 nearly for the women's FA Cup final on Sunday, live on TalkSport 2 as well. It was a festival of football. And a couple of people have said to me, oh, the, the FA Cup final was boring. I didn't see it that way. I thought it was absolutely fascinating from my vantage point. Two really well-drilled, well-organised teams, some sensational players on player Virgil van Dijk and... Trent Alexander-Arnold, the way they were spraying passes from the back was superb. Diaz really introducing himself in his first FA Cup final. And Chelsea had opportunities. And I think Thomas Tuchel afterwards was left to rue those missed opportunities. But I did find it odd, and maybe this is symptomatic of where Chelsea are at, that they went into a penalty shootout in a cup final without a recognised striker on the pitch. That's something surely Thomas Tuchel has to address in the summer.
3: OK, we will get to the FA Cup final uh, in just a second. But I think worth pointing out what you said is absolutely right. If you go back the last 25 years, if they've told us anything, it's that the big clubs take the FA Cup incredibly seriously. Since Chelsea won it in 1997, 22 of the subsequent 25 Cup finals have been won by Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, and now Liverpool.
4: Got the top of Sadio Mane's head. Liverpool able to turn possession over, and it got Diaz in. Diaz across the base of goal. He just couldn't quite find Thiago, made the run forward. And now Diaz has made another excellent run, and got goal of Chalibur, big chance! Saved by Mendy. is there to clear the rebound off the line. Out as far as Keita, and he fires it wide. And there's plenty of room on the left hand side for Marcus Alonso. Pulisic waiting and waiting, and now threads him in, and the angle is tight. And Alisson closed him down very quickly, and got his body behind a shot that was on target. Gaulus through 120. And it'll be settled by penalties again. It is Simikas left footed. Liverpool win the FA Cup.
3: Liverpool remain in the hunt for an historic quadruple after winning the FA Cup final 6-5 on penalties after a nil-nil draw at Wembley on Saturday afternoon I don't know about you Darren but I think Crookie and I both thought that it was an an absorbing contest in which basically you had chances at both ends no goals but loads of entertaining moments yeah absolutely people
1: talk about nil-nils and how they're uh, Board draws. This one was anything but thriller minute stuff. Uh, chances created, chances missed. Attention getting to both sides. Uh, and I just thought it was a really compelling contest and I couldn't take my eyes off it. I, I think the best team won on the day. And I certainly think as far as... I, I did feel a lot of sympathy for Chelsea because they they did turn up, first of all. Uh, and second of all, Mason Mount, when is he going to win an FA Cup final? Honestly, it, a cup really final, answered.
3: Six yeah. cup finals now at Wembley that he's lost. Euros, League yeah. Cup finals, FA Cup finals.
1: So, listen, overall, a really good day. For us as journalists, really good story and subplots within it. And I, I, as I said before, I just think the FA Cup still does have that place in everybody's hearts. And I think that we go again next season.
3: Yeah, it certainly does, I think. And I think it certainly meant a lot to Liverpool, especially afterwards. They celebrated wildly. They absolutely loved it. There was a moment where... Kostas Sinikas, who, who obviously scored the winning penalty was being carried on the shoulders of someone. You couldn't really see who that person was because he was engulfed in smoke and and, and flags and flares and everything. So it was it was it was a brilliant atmosphere on Saturday afternoon. Um let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the way that Liverpool configured their attack. That they started of course with Sadio Mane with Luis Diaz and Mo Salah, but are they going to have Mo Salah available for the Champions League final group? Because he had to come off very early in that first half.
0: Yeah, I did manage to grab a, a word with Mo Salah. We were interviewing uh, Kostas Simikas, the hero of the hour, and apparently they're really good friends. So Mo Salah pretty much gatecrashed the interview, suddenly arrived in our little radio booth uh, wearing his FA Cup winner's medal. And he said he was OK. He said it was pre- precautionary. That was backed up by Simikas as well. So I think... Listen, will he play against Southampton on Tuesday night? I think that's a big decision that, that Jurgen Klopp will have to make. Uh, I would imagine he will be fit for the final day of the season and that Champions League final. Obviously, Virgil van Dijk uh, went off towards the end of, of normal time, didn't feature an extra time. I've got the impression from Jurgen Klopp that was pre-planned because he was carrying some kind of issue going into the cup final as well. So maybe Liverpool's run and the fact they're competing on four fronts is starting to take its toll. But this is where the squad depth comes into play. Um, I thought Matic did a good job when he came on alongside Canate. And obviously you've got Jota, uh, who can be that real real maverick, that real ace up your sleeve when he comes on. So I'm not overly concerned, especially when you factor in the fact that Mo Salah's goal-scoring form of late still isn't particularly good.
3: No, it isn't. That's true. Uh, But Sadio Mane certainly is, even if he didn't get off the score sheet, on Saturday, But Luis Diaz was an absolute threat throughout the entire game, wasn't he? He was frightening how he didn't score. They hit the woodwork a number of times and he was the, the main thorn in Chelsea's side. Um, I spoke to Virgil van Dyke afterwards. He said he, he felt something in his knee in the first half and he thought, OK, I just need to keep an eye on that. And then it got to the end of extra time and he just thought, I don't think I can push it. And if he was going to do that, it could cause more problems. So he thought... The best thing to do was take the advice of the medical staff, come off, and then maybe try and deal with it over the next week or so before the Champions League final. Because Liverpool could probably beat Southampton and win on the final day without him. But taking on Real Madrid without him in that back line will be difficult.
1: Yeah, it will be. Listen, I think both players did the right thing by coming off. uh, Because basically... (laughs) As far as the FA Cup is concerned, I said it earlier, there's a reality about the fact that in terms of priorities, it's not as high as some people would think in Liverpool's uh, uh, priorities, I think. And and the fact that they've only really taken it seriously this season, uh, apart from uh, since the Ogun come to the club. But I, I just think as far as Salah is concerned, soon as he felt a twinge, that was it, come off. I don't think he should be playing on Tuesday I think they can win the game without him uh, against Southampton on Tuesday. They've got so much firepower within their ranks. I'm not even bothered about goal difference. Win the game. You know, that's the priority. Take Southampton seriously. Respect them. And then see where you go from there. I think likewise for Virgil van Dyke. we all know the transformative effect he's had on the team since he's arrived. You do not go into games against players of the calibre of Kareem Benzema without a Virgil van Dyke in your back line because he will tear you to pieces. And I think if van Dyke and Salah are rested up, then they've got a really good chance of winning that Champions League and then worrying about Sunday when it comes
0: did make me yeah. chuckle. I spoke to, to Jürgen Klopp afterwards and said, you've now completed the, the the clean sweep of domestic trophies. Do you ever allow yourself time to reflect on that? And he made a joke. He said, yeah, I'm going to go home and uh, have a cigar. And I haven't got time for that. We've got to play Southampton on Tuesday, which he described as madness. And I thought, well, to be fair, Southampton players have been playing with a, with a cigar in for a few weeks now. <laughs> so I think you'll probably be OK, Jürgen
1: uh, also, you know, it's not madness, you know, sir. I mean that's what happens to successful teams. Yeah. As you are more and more successful, the Premier League and the, and the authorities can't just postpone games and reconfigure the, the schedule and the fixture list because you have been successful. That is what happens to successful teams. They are asked to do it again and again. And actually, that's what makes them great. Their ability to be able to do it again and again, like a Federer, like a Lewis Hamilton like, you know, all of the greatest sportsmen that we've ever seen, like a Frank Frankel, the racehorse. If you can be asked to do it and step up a level each time against higher-caliber opposition and still be able to find a way to win, that's what makes you great. That's why it's not just going to be about winning the trophies if they do it. It will be about the fact that they managed to cope with top-class opposition, one game every three or four days, the intensity, the pressure... Uh, everything combined to be able to do it. So I wouldn't complain. I would actually celebrate the fact that he's got a team capable of being able to meet those challenges.
3: Yeah, and it isn't just a team, is it? It's a squad. And that's why Liverpool have been so successful this season is because what they did at the end of the title winning campaign was start to bring in some of the youngsters, some different players in. We all complained last year that their recruitment wasn't good enough uh, during the, uh, the, the, the summer after the title win and they hadn't strengthened the numbers. They've done that since then. And now their squad looks such a such such a, a wealth of talent. They've got so many options. They're so deep, the squad, that they can bring players on that can do a job. I mean, Simicast coming on, holding his nerve. Do you want to take a penalty? Yeah, I'll take seven or eight. No problem. You know, it, that's the sort of character that you want in the dressing room. That's the character that you want in your team when someone has to be replaced at this stage of the season. When you play you now the 60th game, of the season on Saturday. Their 61st will be Tuesday, 62nd by Sunday, and then ultimately the 63rd game of the season will be the Champions League final. But you need a squad to be able to compete in all of those fixtures, and Liverpool now have that. And it isn't unthinkable now, is it? It It's not impossible. It's not 50-1. to It is really possible that Liverpool could win all four trophies. They've won the League Cup. They've won the FA Cup. They're in the final of the Champions League and because of what happened at the weekend at the London Stadium, Crook, there's every chance now that they might be able to catch Manchester City. We'll do that game in just a second, but let's just talk about it from a Liverpool point of view now. What are you thinking when you get that result from Sunday afternoon?
0: I think it would have been a contrast of emotions. Two 0 up at half-time, you'd have thought this was game on and I think they would have then been turning their attention to Southampton, seeing can we make up this this goal difference gap on Tuesday night? And actually, if there's a team you want to play when you need goals, maybe Southampton are the perfect opponent. I do think that the 2-2 draw changes the dynamism. Manchester City needed four points from their two games to be confirmed of the title. I think they'll get those four points. I expect Liverpool to beat Southampton on Tuesday. I expect them to beat Wolverhampton Wanderers on the final day of the season, but I don't expect them to win the league.
3: What's this do for Chelsea? New owner, um, but no trophies this season. Same old problems in terms of not scoring enough goals this season. When you look at the statistics, you know, Romelu Lukaku may well be their top goal scorer this season, Darren, but it just hasn't worked out for him, has it?
1: No, it hasn't. I expect him to move on in the summer, particularly with the World Cup later this year. Roberto Martinez has already been suggesting that needs to happen and that he needs to play
3: regular first team football that quite clearly isn't going to happen easier and said just, than done though isn't it how do you get rid of a twenty ninety seven 97.5 million pound asset who's earning the money that he's earning well you take a loss
1: and he has to be prepared to accept a loss if he wants to go somewhere because clubs won't want to meet that level of expenditure so really the, the ball is in his court but It's very simple. If he stays at Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel, he won't play. He's not a good enough fit. I think in the terms of the bigger picture, what this season does for Todd Bowley is focus his mind because the bar now has been set for what he has to do. It won't be as easy as it was under Roman Abramovich, who was just prepared to throw money at the problem because Bowley will obviously have to approach things in a different way. The first thing they've got to do is replace that defence. Thomas Tuchel's already said, Liverpool, they buy players, they bring more and more players in. We are seeing players leave at the end of their contracts so they have got to be able to build from the back if they're going to have any chance. That's what Chelsea have always done and they've been impregnable at their best. I, just, I look at the landscape and I just don't know who they bring in to be able to do that again. I'd be amazed if they sold Canty to Man United, but that's a different story.
3: Well, it looks like a very big job that uh, Todd has got to do over the uh, summer period, or we won't be doing it, will it be? I mean, I think Marina Gramoskaya and Bruce Buck are going to stick around, and uh, Thomas Tuchel is going to have to somehow find a way out of what is a, a very difficult situation. because are you worried, you... Sam? I'm, I'm not worried. I just think it's just a big job. I just think there's so much to be done. Antonio Rudiger is such an influence in the team. Cesare so Fpilicueta's powers are waning, but an influence in the dressing room. He wants to leave, but he's worried about how to exit the club but and still maintain his legacy. Christensen is leaving. There are other players that are thinking about moving on. You've got Lukaku, who desperately needs to go off and play. Werner's not good enough. I mean, ultimately, you've got a situation where if Chelsea want to be competitive, they probably need to sign five players in the summer. That's not always easy to do. It's even harder to blend them into a unit and try and get them into a team before the start of the season, which is going to come down very, very quickly. Community Shield is the 30th of July, for Christ's sake. I mean, that's just ludicrous.
0: Well, Chelsea won't need to worry about that game, will they?
3: No, they won't, but they have to get back (laughs) to the after. Crook, stop it. (laughs) <laughs> Listen, he's just pleased. The heat's turned off Manchester United. I mean, the fact that Chelsea have have lost another Cup final on uh, on penalties is really is really it's, it's really painful. But I think what's really painful is, is is the the glee with which rival fans absolutely love the fact that it was Mason Mount that missed the key penalty. Um, six Cup finals he's lost. He's been an absolute stalwart for Chelsea. If you look at his statistics, I think only Harry Kane as an Englishman has been involved in more goals than him over the course of the season crooks desperate to give him a battering in fact the other day he gave him a battering and i sent him all the statistics saying how can you have a go at this guy and he went well i've got high standards um (laughs) but uh, obviously he has high standards as well and he'll be disappointed with himself it was a terrible penalty and i think he'll admit that if you ever spoke to him about it but you know he is he is a sort of symbol of chelsea now so when he does mess up and it is costly the, the rest of the, the fans from other clubs will hone in on that and really will give him a, a bit of stick. But anyway, enough about the cup final, because there is a, a whole load of other matches to get involved with, including the game down at the London Stadium, where it finished West Ham 2, Manchester City 2.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results
2: may vary. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those ninety minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides, and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus be gambleaware.org. T's and Cs apply.
3: And what a game it was. 2-2, Jared Bowen scoring twice in the first half. Manchester City got themselves back into the game. And then almost inexplicably, with five minutes to go, you think this is it. This is the moment that Manchester City seal the title effectively, upsteps Riyad Mahrez and Fabianski makes a terrific, terrific save. I mean, it was a great send-off for Mark Noble. Um, What impacted the game, do you think, more? The atmosphere that was generated at London Stadium or the fact that Manchester City's back four was made up of Zinchenko, Fernandinho and the confusion of that, the movement of that really seemed to cause them an issue in the first half.
0: Yeah, I think that was the issue and it wasn't just in the first half actually. There were two big moments in the second half when Manchester City's defence really put themselves in jeopardy. You had Jarrod Bowen uh, firing into the side netting for a tight angle when he could have completed what would have been a stunning hat-trick. I personally think Jared Bowen deserves a more than honourable mention when we talk about players of the year and the impact he's had uh, on that West Ham team. And Michel Antonio uh, sees he's on a poor back pass, goes one-on-one uh, with Edison, tries a ridiculous chip, quite frankly, when he should have just put his foot through the ball. Uh, and that may well have blown the title race wide open, but he puts it over the crossbar. I think defensively, if you're Liverpool... You will be looking at that and thinking, well, let's hope the likes of Ollie Watkins and Danny Ings and Wendie and Coutinho can seize on Manchester City's woes on the final day of the season. Because they, they look a poor side defensively with Fernandinho at the heart of their back line. They, they miss a bit of leadership without the likes of Diaz. And Zinchenko had a torrid afternoon uh, isolated against Jarrod Bowen. But having said that, they never panicked. They never looked like they were under stress, Manchester City. They, they worked their way back into the game. Their tactics never changed. They kept trying to uh, pick their way through the lines and, and beat what was a really stubborn West Ham rearguard and probably should have won the game with that Mario's penalty. So um, I, I still think that character, that winning mentality will see them through on the final day of the season. But defensively, they have some concerns.
3: Yeah, Manchester City play Aston Villa on the final day of the season. Liverpool take on Wolves, both at home. The top of the table looks like this right now. Liverpool in second place, 36 games played, 86 points, four points behind Manchester City, who have played a game more, 37 and 90 points. But they play on Tuesday night, Liverpool against Southampton. If they win that, then there will be just a point difference between them going into the final game of the season. Manchester City have the edge on goal difference. So, I mean, not that that will probably come into play because the idea will be for both of them to win their games. If Liverpool win all their games and Manchester City drop points, then they will win the title. If Manchester City win their game on Sunday, then they will win it. But Stevie G can win Liverpool title at last, Darren.
0: will not fall over, will
1: he? You guys are so mischievous. Um you know, I think the thing that has been a feature of this Premier League season, not just the title race, is the amount of times supposedly lesser teams are written off against the superpowers and have managed to pull off big results. You go right back to Brentford, for example, against Arsenal. West Ham held uh, City in the League Cup, put them out of that competition. A very strong City side as well. They've beaten Liverpool this season, they've beaten Man United this season. Um, And I think I will be surprised if Steven Gerrard doesn't have Aston Le primed and ready to go. Ultimately, I have to be honest, I don't think they'd have the quality to keep out a side that scored 96 times so far this season and just have so many different points of attack. You could argue they don't even need Erling Haaland. Um, But I think that he will... He will give it a good go and there's a fascinating symmetry about the fact that you know he could have won it for Liverpool as a player and there was that fateful slip, as he, he, you've been joking about. Um, but now he's got the chance to do it as a manager and it'd be fascinating to see if he can.
3: Um, City uh, obviously had to fight back from two goals down. They've got character about them, haven't they? And uh, Jack Grealish would be delighted to get on the score sheet. Um explain to me what Vladimir Souffal was thinking when he decided to put a diving header through his own neck, crook.
0: <laughs> I think that was uh, mental fatigue, to be honest. It's been a long season for West Ham. They've competed really well on two fronts. It's the first time in their history they're going to finish in the top seven in successive top flight seasons. So I think David Moyes and his players deserve a lot of credit for that. But they were under a lot of pressure from Manchester City in the second half. And I think in the end, uh, Souffield just gave way, subsided to that pressure. Could be a big uh, big turning point for West Ham as well, because I do think there's a big difference between being in the Europa League next season with a carrot of a Champions League place at the end of it, and the Europa Conference League. Of course, all eyes now uh, on Manchester United. Can they better West Ham's result on the final day and finishing the top six. I, I, just
3: to be honest, I don't think all eyes are on Manchester United now, mate. I've got to be completely clear about that. I think there might be people who are just, you know, passingly paying a little bit of attention. Uh, as Again, to I think it makes a win. big
0: difference to the rebuild. You know, if you're in a competition that, that has a Champions League place for the winners, or if you're in the Europa Conference League, I think that does make it, a big difference. It, when It does, comes but to it's not the biggest... It's, it's,
3: it's certainly not the biggest story in the Premier League over the next week, is it? And, then, you know, West Ham... But West Ham have got every chance of usurping Manchester United, bearing in mind that Manchester United's last performance was, well, will have been by the time they kick off two weeks ago. And then, obviously, they play against the Crystal Palace team who are playing well under Patrick Vieira. They do actually have a game uh, on Thursday night as well against uh, Everton, which we'll come on to in just a few moments. But West Ham have got a, a winnable fixture at the end of the uh, of the season as well and uh, you know they still feel as if they're fighting right to the very end and I think that's great for them because they could have wilted after that Europa League uh, semi-final defeat in Frankfurt I mean, they certainly, the amount of pressure that was on them going into that game was absolutely huge. And the expectation, similar. You know, so many people went over there, so many people, it was the biggest day of their West Ham supporting lives going to Frankfurt for that semi final, hoping to get to the first major final in, in a generation um, in terms of European football. But the fact that they've come back and they've put up great fights over the last two weekends and kept themselves in the hunt for a Europa League place is credit to David Moyes, isn't it, Darren? Absolutely it is. And and what it says is that he has a basic level that he expects from his players,
1: regardless of whatever team he puts out. I slightly, ever so slightly disagree with, with, with you, Crook, in, in so much as I, I don't think uh, Sufal's header was uh, mental fatigue. I thought, watching that performance from West Ham, that it showed what they can produce when they are fresh and when they are fit. And they'd had a clear week for the first time in ages. And it just shows what might have been if David Moyes had brought players in in January to maybe just take the heat off some of his key players going into the second half of the season. Because I thought the performance was exceptional. And had it not been the case that Ten Hag is going to cut his IX uh, tenure short prematurely and take over at Man United straight away... I would have put my house on West Ham getting that sixth place because United's you know, way record at the moment is abysmal. But I just wonder whether him turning up for work sooner than expected, might actually prove the difference in that final game, get a performance, get into a competition, as you've been saying, with a Champions League place at the end of it to give himself a bit of an insurance policy, if you like. And I think that could deprive West Ham of a Europa League place that actually they deserve.
3: Okay, so let's talk about that then, because that is news that's sort of broken in the last sort of 12 hours or so, that Eric Ten Hag did a press conference yesterday in Dutch. I mean, I've only seen the subtitled version of it, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of suggests, he doesn't say I'm going to work tomorrow at 9am and going to turn up at Carrington and, and take training for the rest of the season. But that seemed to be the sort of influence, didn't it? He said, I've got to start work on Monday morning. I've got to get in there and start getting my hands dirty because there's so many problems to sort out. So he's not going on the Ajax post-season tour to Curacao. I think that's how you say it. Uh, yeah, well, he's going can to- I
1: just jump in there, Sam, just before you answer, Sam, because obviously our reporters who cover man united for for the daily Mirror, we are reporting that that is going to be the case and, right. and they made a couple of checks as well to 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 get the picture so that will develop in more details at the time we we are recording this obviously on monday morning but uh our, our colleagues and our reporters at the paper are getting more detail on that. So we'll know more in the coming days. But certainly it does appear to be the case that he isn't going to go on the postseason tour and that he's going to start work at United soon than expected, yes.
0: Well, do you reckon he'll be in the dugout on Sunday? No. Uh, the information I have is, is that he's sort of already unofficially started work. You would expect that. There have been a lot of conversations with the Manchester United hierarchy about their summer spending plans, about how they tackle the new season. From what I'm told, he isn't expected in Manchester this week. He may well be in the UK, but I think he's more likely to be operating out of United London offices. Ralph Randnick is continuing to take charge of training. He, I'm told, will be the manager for the final game of the season. But I think what it will do is focus the players' minds, as Darren says. You know, the fact the new headmaster is keeping a much closer eye on the unruly school children, maybe they would have expected, I think could work to Manchester United advantage. I guess it's a balancing act for United because I think it's a brilliant thing that he's sacrificing that postseason tour, not going off on a summer holiday, but it shows he realises the enormity of the task. But I think as a club, they're trying to be respectful and not to undermine Ralph Rangnick as well. So that's why I wouldn't imagine... We'll see him at Carrington this week. I think he'll turn up pretty soon after the Crystal Palace game. That could change, obviously. But I, that's the I, information if, that if i given. If
3: only the players had been respectful to Ralph Ranić and not undermined him over the course of the last six months, that would, might have been a different situation altogether. Um, Darren, you're just about to ask Crook a question? Yeah, I was about to ask a question. I think there are a lot of niceties being observed here, but I don't know if there's
1: any point. I mean, as far as Ajax... (laughs) No, it doesn't. I mean, Ajax need their new manager to come in and take control fairly quickly. They know that... Uh, Ten Hag is leaving, so I'm not quite sure why he would go on their postseason tour anyway. Your job True. is done, you've won the league. As far as Ralf Rangnick's concerned, he signed a contract with Austria. He is going to come out of the dugout. There is zero point in him being in the dugout on Sunday. because, And clear, arguably
3: this is an emergency situation, so it's all hands on pump. If it well, means that he comes in and gets involved
0: for one week and they get into the Europa League, well, that's a good start. 100%. I agree. I, I don't disagree. This is just the information from following up uh, oh, no, the story in Darren's be. newspaper. I spoke to sources out Old Trafford, and that's the information that's been relayed to me.
1: Yeah, no, no, th- th- that's the other thing. The, the facts are the facts. These, these are just our opinions here in this little forum here, and, and I'm sure the people listening to us and watching us will have their own view, but I just think... Th- in this era of working from home or whatever, he doesn't necessarily need to be at Manchester, but he does need to send a message that he is now in control Mm. and that the players now will be accountable to him and not to Rangnick. And so they won't be able to, I think there's a phrase that we would use that we probably shouldn't use on, on TV, but they won't be able to take liberties Anymore in quite the same way that they have been. And let's see now if Ten Hag makes a pronouncement and a player feels bold enough to go onto, <coughs> excuse me, uh, social media to contend with it. Because all of the small levels of disrespect we saw from the players towards Ralph Rangnick, they won't be able to do anymore. And I just think the message that Ten Hag sends out by saying, I'm in control
0: now, yeah, is, is I'm huge. Here. Manchester United. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he does make an appearance at Selhurst Park on the final day of the season. We shall see.
3: All right, okay. Uh, we'll move on from Manchester United. Lots more to talk about, uh, including, I, mean, I wonder who's in control of the top four race now.
4: Nine months of wondering and worrying and it all comes down to the next few days or so. Kane hits it, right footed in and scores! And Tottenham Hotspur lead! For three points vital to matters still to be decided at opposite ends of the Premier League table. So Spurs have beaten Burnley and Leeds United have long since been whipping up the atmosphere here. Gellhardt gets to the byline, checks onto his left. Can he find room for a cross? Oh! At the far post, oh! strike! <laughs> And strike equalises and Ellen Rose goes mad! The story here is about Leeds United hauling themselves out of the bottom three with one more game to play at the Brentford Community Stadium. The
2: home fans boo, Mahrez taking his time, slowly, slowly running up to it, and it's saved by Fabianski. Point though, which is going to keep things in Manchester City's control of the title race, full time, West Ham two, Man City two. It's
4: Everton two, Brentford three, and things going from bad to worse for Everton because Solomon Rondon has just become their second player sent off today, they are down to nine men.
3: Well, top four was up for grabs again over the weekend and the relegation places changed once more. Tottenham beat Burnley by a goal to nil, live on TalkSport. Then Leeds drew with Brighton in dramatic circumstances, live on TalkSport, straight after that. The relegation picture became a little bit clearer as Everton and Burnley uh, both lost and Leeds drew. It means that the bottom of the table looks like this. Everton, 16th, 36 points And uh, from 36 games, Leeds United 17th, 37 games played, 35 points. They've played a game more uh, than Everton, have a point less, but their goal difference is minus 38. That could be absolutely key. Uh, Burnley then in 18th position, dropping into the bottom three, 34 points from 36 games and a minus 18 goal difference. Um, And Watford and Norwich obviously already gone at the top of the table. As far as the top four is concerned, Tottenham fourth at the moment, 68 points in 37 games, but Arsenal go to Newcastle United on Monday night football with 66 points from 36 games and could go above them with a victory. But the last day of the season, I'm sure, will be fascinating, especially seeing as we can already sort of guess that that Norwich will probably be Uh, cannon fodder so Tottenham should get another three points on Sunday but will Arsenal against uh, an Everton side who we'll talk about in detail in just a second Uh, let's focus uh, on Tottenham Hotspur uh, and that game between them and Burnley because this game was decided by one thing a penalty a VAR decision there has been some sort of controversy about it some Arsenal fans getting a little bit irritated about the fact that the VAR intervenes uh, in this handball I don't understand why I'm reading a a paper this morning, The Sun, in which uh, Mark Halsey says the law is an ass. Well, you can disagree with the the law. Mm -hmm. He also says, I'm not convinced that VAR should have recommended the VAR review, which led to Tottenham's penalty, which is nonsense, because it is a clear breach of the rules by Ashley Barnes, inadvertent or not, accidental or not. That is the definition of an IFAB penalty, according to the law book. I went back and looked at it last night. How on earth anybody can complain about this decision I, I don't know. It's beyond me. It's just stupid. It's is the law. If you don't like the law, I totally get it because the law does seem to be a little bit prescriptive in this area, especially with handball and they have changed it so many times that sometimes it's
0: difficult to keep up with. But according to the current laws of the game, that is handball. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's unfortunate. I don't think there was too much intent, but it's the old cliche when you're at the bottom of the table, these are the things that can go against you. It, it's... Um, It's it's not a misuse of VAR because it was a clear and obvious error. It it was a penalty. I think actually Tottenham deserved to win the game, Uh, particularly in the first half. They peppered that Burnley goal uh, without managing to find a way through. So I I don't really think Arsenal and Burnley fans can have too much to complain about. I think, as you say, it was the rule being applied correctly. Whether you agree with the rule or not, I think that's a whole new debate.
3: Yeah, uh, Mike Jackson wasn't happy about it. He's never going to be because it was a decisive moment. But has he lost a little bit of magic, Darren? (laughs)
1: <laughs> i was so tempted to do some some michael jackson puns. you
3: can't keep doing michael jackson sometimes i though, know can't. i know but i'm just all right okay, okay. i would say we run out but there's quite a few of them
1: <laughs> no i mean I, I, I we did some last know, week and you can't really beat that so i, I think know. as far as um spurs are concerned I was, fa- I was fascinated to listen to what you were saying about my, Mark Halsey because he says the law is an ass, but he was involved in enforcing the law for a long time. And it always sticks in the crawl when people who could speak when they're in a position to actually do something about the situation don't. And then afterwards, they're very vocal. Uh, listen, as you were rightly saying, be angry with the law, not the ref. The ref was imposing the law and the mm. fact is that burnley had a long time to overcome that deficit and they didn't have the quality to do that. I don't think it takes anything from the job from that Mike Jackson has done because he's been terrific in his time at the club. But the bottom line is Tottenham were just too strong. They knew they had a job to do. They didn't have it didn't have to be pretty. It didn't have to be spectacular. They just had to win and that's what they did and that's why it goes to the wire.
3: Um, yeah, burnley I mean could be I mean they could be on the verge of relegation by the time we go there on Thursday night. That they play Aston Villa on Sat on Thursday night at Villa Park. I'll be there for TalkSport. It's live and exclusive on TalkSport that game. Aston Villa Burnley, and obviously they then have a, a, an odd situation where they're playing Newcastle United, who everyone thought were going to be relegation candidates at the beginning of the season. Very much not now, at home on the final day of the season as well. So. They've got a job on their hands. So have Leeds United. Leeds went behind early in their game against Brighton. Terrific goal from Danny Welbeck. Brilliantly well taken. Um, But does it give them a little bit of momentum going into their last
0: game away at Brentford that they scored right at the death? Yeah, it it can be a game-changing moment. Sometimes you need a, a dramatic incident like that to... Change the course of your season, change the course of history. So I think it's given themselves a fighting chance. But for me, the big moment in that game wasn't the Pascal Strout equaliser, brilliant play by uh, Gelhart to, to carve open the opportunity. What did Mother Teresa It was the missed header from Danny Welbeck um, a few minutes earlier. Because if he scores that and Brighton go 2 0 up, it's game over and it's probably season over for Leeds. So I think if they do stay up, a magnum of champagne might be heading for the World Boat residents at the end of the season. I think it will end up being a two-horse race because I can see Everton rallying and galvanising themselves to to beat Crystal Palace at home in midweek. That will get them over the line. Uh, I think Burnley have the easier fixtures on paper. Obviously, they've got two bites at the Cherry. uh, Aston Villa away, who have already beaten them at Turf Moor and then Newcastle at home on the last day. But I've got to say, I can't remember a season... where where there's been so much at stake going into the last day of the season, and so many subplots as well. You've got Brentford against Leeds. Pontus Janssen uh, could play a part in relegating his former club. You've got Chris Wood going back to turf Moor, having left in uh, controversial circumstances, could send his old employers into the Championship. And as we've already spoken about, you've got Steven Gerrard in a position to win Liverpool the Premier League title. It is going to be a brilliant last day.
3: Mikel Arteta, the former Everton captain, as a manager of uh, Arsenal threatening to send Everton down to
0: the championship. It's going to be sensational. And actually, obviously, we have to divide the games up between us and our radio rivals. and, And usually you're all fighting over one particular fixture because you've got seven or eight dead rubbers. That isn't going to be the case this weekend. It doesn't
3: matter. We were talking about it yesterday, actually. You know, we do this sort of machinations of what happens if this happens and and, and what are we going to pick and where are we going to pick? Okay, so if they pick this, we're going to pick that. And, uh, you know, what game we are going to end up here? And I said, it doesn't matter. At one stage, this is the, the, the editor said, it doesn't really matter because whatever we get, we will be at, we, it will be at a at the centre of a story because ultimately, even if you're not a Manchester City or Liverpool you'd be at Arsenal. And then you've got the Arsenal story and the Everton story. You've got two sides of a coin. If you, I mean, you could go anywhere and there's, there's something riding on it that's going to be, that's going to capture the, the attention of the nation because it is. There's so much happening, especially in that top and the bottom of the, of the Premier League going into the last few uh, days of the season. Um, Leeds forced Robert Sanchez into a couple of saves during this game. Yeah. Um, and they did have a, a threat, but their atmosphere towards the end of the match prior to the Pascal strike goal, was pretty toxic, wasn't it? I mean, there were lots of chance of sack the board. Whatever happens, I don't think that the supporters are as accepting of Jesse Marsh as maybe the board thought they would be, Darren.
1: I I don't know. I don't know about that. I think that what happened just today was an expression of of frustration at the position they felt they were in. They felt at that moment they were going down. Until Strowick scored, they felt it was all over. They felt that they were at home. They were masters of their own destiny, that they would win. And I think had they gone in front and held on, um, it would have been a very different atmosphere. I, I know what you're talking about. There was some chance for Marcello Bielsa um, where at one point where Jesse Marsh was making the substitutions. But the fact is... The fact is that had Bielsa stayed in charge, they'd have been down a long time ago. It is because of Marcello Bielsa and that open, enterprising way of playing football that they'd conceded as many goals as they had done. And they were the easiest team at that point in the Premier League to play against. Jesse Marsh has given them a chance. And I think that it's more about the board, it's more about investment, it's more about mm. reminding the board that regardless of what happens, they've got to do more to bring in more quality ahead of next season.
3: If they do survive, do you think that Jesse Marshall will thank Mother Teresa?
1: <laughs> no, I, I know you're going to come in, Sam, but, uh, but uh, I, you know, I have to say, I have an issue with this.
3: What, Mother Teresa? You have an issue with Mother Teresa?
1: No, I have an issue oh. with the fact that so many people are ripping them apart for talking about... The, the, listen, we... There is this stereotype around footballers that they're idiots, that they've got no brains, that they don't read. And, and we actually look down at people who used to deride, for example, Graham Lasso for reading a newspaper and a coach. But I think within our industry, there's a little bit of snobbery around that within our industry, because why would he not use somebody inspirational to lift his players in a difficult moment for the football,
3: it club. just seems a bit out of context actually, and when he said course, it 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 was, it was just it just felt a little things. bit cheesy, whereas I think sometimes when you use other sort of inspirational figures or the way you, that you present it, it can come across as a also the other the other thing I would say is is that most managers, if they do invoke some sort of higher being or mm-hmm. some sort of inspirational figure. They do it behind closed doors where no one really knows about it. And you find out maybe 10 years later, if someone leaks it out, you know, going around telling everybody that that's what you're doing. Sort of it just it, I think it came across a little bit cheesy and it, wow. it opened him up as for ridicule. I, I, I thought it opened him up for ridicule. No, I don't. Also, I don't think we've I ever think really I spoken think,
0: about Mother Teresa and Leeds in the same breath before, to be honest. It's not a club you would usually associate with uh, with, with someone like Ma- Mother Teresa, is it? I don't
3: know, there's quite a lot of healing to be done there. Uh, right, I, okay. I, just think, I just think, very
1: quickly, I think the fact that it's being derided about this says a lot about our industry and the fact that we think we're progressive, but actually we're not. We really do stick to round pegs, round holes, and a very one-dimensional way of looking at the world.
3: Oh, I feel like we've been chastised there, Crook, for uh, taking the game out of Jesse March. <laughs> <All right, okay. laughs> Please, Mother Teresa, forgive me. Right, move on. Everton 2, Brentford 3. After a rapid recovery, Everton slipped at home to Brentford and injuries to Mina, Delph, and obviously the, the others haven't helped at all over the course of the season. In fact, that's been one of the big problems that Everton have had. But getting two players sent off in a game like this doesn't help either. And look, I don't know what Salomon Rondon was doing, bearing in mind that Everton need bodies at this stage of the situation, uh, bearing in mind the situation that they are in, fighting for their lives at the bottom of the table. He's going to be suspended for Thursday night's game. It was a ridiculous challenge. He was right to be sent off. But Jared Brandthwaite should never have been sent off, not because what he did was wrong um, or wasn't wrong. It was. And in any other circumstances, it was a red card. But prior to that, there was a shirt pull on Richarlison, which under Law 12, Section 2, is a holding of an opponent, should have been penalised by a penalty. It was so blatant, I don't understand why the VAR did not go back and look at it. That would have changed the entire situation. Branthrope wouldn't have been sent off. Everton most likely would have been 2-0 up. The complexion of the game had changed. That was the first uh, error by the referee and the VAR. And then, to compound it, when Richarlison gets his penalty, Mads Sorensen, who commits the foul does not get yellow carded for that foul in the penalty area, which it was a clear yellow card. He'd already been booked and should have been off. Again, that should have changed the nature of the game. It didn't. And end Everton end up losing the match. Now, I can understand that these calls are sort of in the moment 50-50 situations, but they are big calls that have gone against Everton in a big game, which absolutely changed the relegation picture.
0: Yeah, because without the sending off, the first one, I think they would have gone on and won the game quite comfortably. It changes the whole dynamics. Everton aren't a good enough side. They're not a, a well-disciplined enough side to, to see out that kind of game with 10 men. I do think once they went 2-1 up, Frank Lampard should have maybe thought about some changes that that would have made Everton better as a defensive unit. I think they were still trying to score more goals and perhaps you can question his game management. I thought he was quite circumspect after the game, actually. He didn't really rant and riot. Rant and rave about the, the the decisions, but I think you're absolutely right. It, it was a clear penalty for the shirt, but on Rashalas, and it was still poor defending from Brambley to get himself the wrong side and, and then and then bring his man down. So if you take that in isolation, he can have no complaints. And I think you're probably right um, about Mad Spec should have been sent off. I'm not as vehement as you are on that one, but yeah, Everton can can feel very hard done by.
3: Yeah, but you can understand if you're an Everton supporter, when you're looking at it, you're thinking, oh, how have all of these calls gone against us? I don't really understand it.
1: Uh, and listen, we've disagreed on one or two things today, but you are 150% right on this, on the entire sequence that you actually describe. And Some people look at Frank Lampard and say, hang on a minute, you're criticising the referee's focus on your own team. And there are issues for him to look at regarding his own team and their inability to keep their heads in difficult moments. But at the same time, some of the officiating in that match was poor, particularly when they have VAR to help them. They have the technology to help them. But sometimes the people operating the technology are incompetent themselves. And I know that's a strong word to use, but we are in moments that cost people their jobs, that have an impact on people's livelihoods at a time when we go across a living crisis you know these are difficult moments and if Everton were to go down you know a lot of people will have a lot stronger things to say than calling the officials operating their technology that could have had an impact in a situation like this incompetent. Yep
3: uh, and as a result of that you know I mean the focus is on Michael Oliver because he was the the referee in the middle. But actually, you know, the VAR needs to play a part, needs to be stronger, needs to be in his ear saying, look, it was a serious shirtful. I mean, again, I'm looking at what Mark Halsey said about it and he seems to think that uh, there was... Uh, there was just a holding of each other's shirts between Christopher Ayer and Richarlison. I didn't see it like that. I, I thought Richarlison's shirt was pulled back so far it was going to rip at one stage. And I think, you know, in any other part of the field, that's going to be a free kick, anyway. See what I
1: fine. mean? See what I mean about Mark Halsey? You know, he's calling the rules not fit for purpose when they suit what his agenda is. But then you have a situation like that clear to everybody mm. and suddenly he's making excuses for it. That's yeah, part it, of the problem.
3: Well, it's a part of a problem that, you know, there's the lack of consistency and it was a bit of a debate on twitter yesterday like you know talking about the handball and someone was saying yeah but the laws aren't applied evenly and you know that even if the ashley barnes thing is like really annoying because you don't agree from a moral standpoint that that should be a handball the fact that it's in law you can justify it but the laws aren't applied consistently over the course of the season so Whereas this week, that was a handball. Next week, it might not be. I hope that's not the case because I think it's pretty clear, cut that one. But I understand that when you look at the Everton situation, Everton fans legitimately will be putting their hands up saying, what on earth is going on? Look, let's not be completely one-eyed about this. Actually, those decisions were really bad. It did change this game. But Everton have conceded 59 goals over the course of the season, which is the most that they've conceded in the Premier League season for 21 years. So the reason they're in... The problems that they are, Crook, is because they can't defend, they can't keep the ball out of the net.
0: Yeah, and they miss Mina. I mean, you look at the the back line that Frank Lampard had to deploy yesterday, you wouldn't really want to be going into a, a, a game that could decide your Premier League future with that back line. So it, it seems ridiculous when you look at the money that Everton have spent. But if they do stay up this season, that's a squad that is in major need of need of surgery Dominic Calvert Lewin didn't know much about it, but he's on the score sheet. His first goal <laughs> from open place since August. That might just give him a boost between now and the end of the season. Although it's I think my goal. he'll probably It's leave. my
3: goal. It's my goal. It's my, <laughs> my goal. He kept saying to the referee, It's my yeah, goal. I
0: don't mind that as a centre forward. I think you need you need that sort of uh, selfishness. But I think he may well be sacrificed this summer to generate funds, to give Frank Lampard the, the option of revamping the squad. Jordan Pickford's had an excellent end to the season. Uh, I'm told that maybe they could cash in on him as well. So I think it's going to be an interesting summer at Everton. I think out the bottom three, as I've said already, I think they're the most likely to survive. But these are are two games um, that are going to be fraught with tension, particularly at Goodison Park on Thursday night. The atmosphere is going to be electric. I think Frank Lampard is still a bit too emotional for me in, in the game. And maybe that had an impact in the second sending off because it was just such a brainless challenge from Salomon Rondon. Was he too fired up? Was he tapping into the crowd's energy too much. Again, game management on Thursday night because Crystal Palace are a a difficult side to play against under Patrick Vieira. They will not roll over. Yeah, one more
3: win from the final two games will guarantee survival for Everton. They've got Crystal Palace at home on Thursday. Arsenal are away on Sunday. Uh, Leeds have got an inferior goal difference. It means they have to finish ahead on points or they will be relegated. They've got Brentford away on Sunday. Brentford obviously going to bring the curtain down a brilliant season so far they've got 35 points. Burnley have got a couple of games still to play. They require a point at least and four will all but assure safety for them. If they were to get a point uh, on Thursday night against Aston Villa they'll go above Leeds United on goal difference and all the pressure would be on Leeds going into <coughs> the final day of the season. It is going to be absolutely uh, gripping. There are some other games to have a quick look at before we leave you. Um, Not that they mean too much in the grand scheme of things. Um, Where do you want to start? Should we start with Watford 1, Leicester 5? Should we start there? Because I don't think I've ever seen defending as bad as the defending that has been on offer from Watford recently, apart from their game against Everton, because they hate Everton uh, and they, they sort of like, you know, puff their chest out because of the Marco Silva, Richarlison, De Cure, all that sort of stuff that went on with the snakes and all that kind of bits and pieces a couple of years ago. They raised their game for the match against Everton, but they have been absolutely abysmal in terms of conceding goals over the course of the season, haven't they? And their defending on Sunday night was laughable, really. Yeah. Uh, Listen, nothing about Watford now surprises me. They've
1: been shambolic from the start of the season uh, to the end. I think, well, not I think we can all see that probably half that squad is committed. The other half can't wait to get out of there. I would not be surprised if some players want to leave, if other players are picked off by clubs who want to do a canny bit of business. Ismail Assar looks too good for that Watford squad. Emmanuel Dennis could lead the line for a West Ham, maybe even an Everton uh, next season. Um, Although I think he could do better than an Everton right now because I think Everton need a bit of a root and branch review as well. But I think as far as Watford are concerned, Roy Hodgson deserved better, didn't get it. And as a club, like I said before, I don't like it when clubs go down. We know about the cost. We talk about the football, but there's a human cost as well to lots of people. But in terms of the way that they've run that club, it's been poor. And in footballing terms, they're getting what they deserve.
3: Yeah. And and look, Roy Hodgson wasn't sort of mincing his words yesterday when he sort of said, you know, bad mistakes led to the goals. When you analyse the goals we conceded, there isn't a lot of good, you could say, crass individual errors. And we find ourselves on the end of a very bad defeat. We had the worst home record in all the leagues. You need your wins at home. The fans are entitled to be frustrated and upset with us and to make their opinions heard. Um, and, and and they did, in a way, the for fans yesterday, by not turning up. There was literally, basically... I mean, only 30% of the seats were full at Vicarage Road yesterday. I mean, you can sort of massage the statistics on tickets sold, et cetera, et cetera. But people voted with their feet yesterday. They decided not to go and watch that football match, Alex.
0: Yeah, and you can understand their frustrations. I think at the end of the season, the league table will tell us that Norwich are the worst team in the Premier League because they'll lose to Tottenham and therefore can't get themselves off the bottom. But Watford have certainly run them close. Um, and arguably with a a better group of of players who just haven't performed. I mean, Darren mentioned Ismail Assar there, who in the past has been admired by Liverpool and I believe may still be on their list, Manchester United as well. But you're taking a bit of a leap of faith because he's been dreadful. He's been as poor as everybody else in a Watford shirt this season. Uh, Emmanuel Dennis is pretty much down tools, but I think he's probably got enough credit in the bank, as Darren says, to persuade somebody in the Premier League to offer him a lifeline. But apart from that, I can't see Cubs queuing round the door for these Watford players. I think there's a, a heck of a rebuild job on for Rob Edwards. And can I, ju- can I just address Roy Hodgson's comments pre-match when he said that he wouldn't recognise Rob Edwards, uh, he, he's never met him. That's simply not true because he was actually at the training ground uh, along with Ray Lewington when Rob Edwards turned up to discuss terms and, and agree a contract. So I think that's really poor from somebody who's seen as the sort of elder statesman of British coaches to try and throw his successor under a bus. I think it's totally needless. And I have to say, speaking to Watford fans, a lot of the comments that Roy Hodgson has made over the course of the season and not acknowledging them at Crystal Palace the other week, he's certainly not endeared himself to the Watford sports. It it didn't work. It didn't work. He didn't fit. He didn't uh,
3: manage to sort of ingratiate himself with, uh, the supporters i think the people at the club actually get on quite well with him and they're all very sort of respectful of him but i think it was just a job too far to him I, for him I, I, and that's not like ageism in any way shape or form but it, it, it just didn't to me feel as if he was focused enough on on trying to get the team out of the situation they were and building the bridges that needed to be built I mean there was so much that needed to be done there I don't think he was capable of it well he wasn't capable of it they've got 23 points uh, and they've conceded 75 goals which is quite remarkable really because you know things don't go their way I mean they played Chelsea on the final day of the season there's every chance that they could end up with the worst defence in the league that that could happen uh, although it depends who's playing up front for Chelsea um, Who's playing in goal for Leicester City on the final day of the season and where was Kasper Schmeichel yesterday?
0: Well, it's an interesting one. I'll let Darren come in in a moment. But I got some information uh, last week. It was in my transfer notebook on the TalkSport website that Kaspras Michael could uh, possibly be coming to the end of his time at Leicester. He's only got a year left on his contract. I think he's made it pretty clear, both publicly and privately, that he wants to play in in European football, wants to play in the Champions League. Uh, So he has a decision to make. I understand there is a meeting between him, Brendan Rogers, and the board, penciled in very soon after the final game of the season to discuss his future but it was interesting the timing of that information and the fact that Danny Ward then suddenly finds himself in goal I think Brendan Rodgers uh, passed it off as sort of a pre-planned situation that they would give Ward some game time at the end of the season but I don't think it's a coincidence Darren.
1: No I don't think it was either I think you summed it up very well I think as far as Cashfish Michael is concerned He wants to play European football and Leicester haven't managed that. I just wonder if he might be jumping too soon because I think Leicester will go again. Brendan Rodgers, very ambitious. The club have the finance to be able to bring players in. I think there'll be a big shake-up now that we've reached the end of the season. And it could just be, okay, generally when players decide to make decisions like this, there's normally someone somewhere that is aware, shall we say, that they're about to make that decision, and I obviously have to phrase it very carefully. Um, but I just wonder if Leicester might be a club that that go again in the summer, and they once they reinvigorate that side, they might just turn into a club that you might have turned his back on a bit quickly, mm. a bit too quickly.
3: Interesting. Okay, we don't want to turn our back on on uh, Aston Villa and Crystal Palace too quickly, but they drew one one uh, this weekend. Anyone see the game? Mm. Well, you did. Mm. You didn't see the whole game, did you? That's not... The whole game, no. For yeah, no. no. the goals, didn't you? you the goals, yeah. They
1: were good. They were very good. good. Um, good. Apparently, us, the
0: they <laughs> Apparently, the game was terrible.
1: Apparently, oh, the game was terrible. That's why I was grateful to have only seen the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I say, you know, I think Palace, look, the, the best thing to say about Palace is that overall, they've been better for the arrival of Patrick Vieira. They'll finish mid-table. They've got a really good, solid
3: base to build on. Defensively. It's lower mid-table now, though, isn't it? I mean, it's not It's not like mid-table. I mean, it, you know... That's it, is,
1: the... it is, but lower mid-table, it's mid-table. The bottom line is that they're safe from relegation and they've got a platform to build on. You know the direction he wants to take the club. They had a terrific cup run. Um, hopefully, they'll be able to have another season of Colin Gallagher, maybe even signing permanently. Um, I'm I'm not not sure
3: that's going to happen. Chelsea Chelsea need more players than anybody else. I was was speaking
0: to somebody associated with Palace a couple of weeks ago, and there was a suspicion that maybe Frank Lampard could be ready to swoop in if Everton stay up. They're not as confident, I don't think, of keeping Conor Gallagher as maybe they were earlier in the season. If you were Conor
1: Gallagher, would you go to Everton and work under Lampard, even though you'd be working under Lampard? Or would you start a Crystal Palace side where the first steps towards an identity, a solid style of play, a decent foundation defensively behind you, a group of young players all pushing in the same direction. Which of the two would you go for? It's
0: an interesting conundrum. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. What's I your guess. answer then?
3: Come on, what's your answer? Well, on the face
0: of it, Everton are a bigger club. Um, but there is more stability at Crystal Palace, and and listen, oh, we could discounting the fact they can go back to Chelsea then, because uh, the, you know, obviously Chelsea's
3: midfield blend has been a bit of a problem over the course of the entire season. So the, the idea that he can just be discarded and not be used, I mean, it seems fanciful to me. I mean, I was What's going that? through the Chelsea squad the other day; they've sold to Tamori and Gerhi, and they're desperate for centre halves all of a sudden. I, I mean. You know, but therein you lies the
0: problem. At, you know, the weekend, they're, 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 at
3: the weekend, you had a situation where Christensen just decided he didn't fancy going to the cup final. Oh, no, I'm not really ready to play. So they had to play Chalaba last minute and disrupted all their plans. But, he actually but, did Sam, very well, but that's the not the point. Is,
1: the truth is that all those young players you've just mentioned, in their strongest side, they do not play. And right now, we're in an age of empowerment where players are saying, I don't want to sit on benches when there are World Cups. Totally
3: get that. Totally get that. But they will be able to get in the side next year because Chelsea won't have any defenders, will they? Well, yeah,
1: start. but that's not their young players' problem. The young players are saying, no. well, if you
2: but look it's at Chelsea's tomorrow,
1: problem. tomorrow's gone to AC Milan and he's played all season. Tammy mm-hmm. Abraham's gone to Roma. He's yeah. played all season. He's come on a bundle. Should it players... Looks like great decision-making, doesn't it? Say again? Looks like great decision-making, doesn't it? From the point of view of the players, absolutely, yes. And that's why I'm saying, not from the club.
2: Yeah,
1: but listen, if you're Conor Gallagher, you're saying, if I stay, I want to play every week. If I don't stay, it doesn't exactly help me. Look at Jesse Lingard at Man United. Mm. Promised he'll play, didn't play, could have got West Ham, could have had a good cup run in the the Europa League, probably could have helped them to win it. Instead, he's kicking his heels. A lot of young players are looking at the situation regarding their parent clubs, and the quality they have in saying, if I stay, I'm not going to play. And even if Chelsea want to catch the top two, they've got to bring in experienced quality because it's too much pressure to put on the shoulders of young players. It cannot be done.
3: The good news is, boys, is that we're here all over the summer doing the transfer sort of notebook uh, with uh, Crookie because he's got his little column that goes out on a Friday. But we're also going to be doing the podcast and he's going to be with the two of you. We'll all be keeping up to date with all the transfers and talking about who could go where. So there's all this speculation uh, still to come over the course of the summer. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your time and your energy today. Um,
0: will, you, we should you mention that Wolves drew 1-1 one, one at home to Norwich, just so that Norwich fans don't think we've already forgotten them and cast them into the sorry. Championship.
3: Sorry, sorry. Wolves won, Norwich won. <laughs>
0: um,
3: <laughs> I didn't see that one either. Uh, there's a lot of football going on on Sunday afternoon. Um I didn't watch the women's cup. I was at the women's cup final. I've got to say, brilliant game. What a fantastic game. Three to 49,000 people at Wembley Stadium. Cracking. Tickets were only £2.50 for kids, £20 for adults. Brilliant. Pick mix was 12, 12 quid. So Wembley's still got their money. Don't worry about that. But getting through the door was a lot cheaper. But it was a brilliant atmosphere. brilliant, And a brilliant, brilliant, high-quality game. If you haven't seen Aaron Cuthbert's goal, then please, please check it out. Right, OK. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, this week, I'll be at Aston Villarreal's Burnley on Thursday night live on TalkSport as we bring you the uh, relegation race in full. And then on Sunday, God knows where we'll be, we'll sort that out over the next couple of days. But I'll tell you what, wherever we are, it will be gripping. So keep listening to TalkSport.